hi to her before she leaves. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 26, and uh, we're going to start at verse 57 to finish out the chapter. And uh, we saw that the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, have been hunting for an opportunity to arrest Jesus and uh, kill him. They want to get rid of Jesus. And Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, have sold, has sold him down the, the river and have made that opportunity possible. So last week we saw how Judas comes into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying, betrays him with a kiss, uh, leads the posse, the Jewish posse, uh, to the Garden setting, and Jesus is apprehended, and he's now being led away for trial. So verses, here's how I'm going to divide this rest of this chapter, verses 57 through 68, I'm going to call that the trial of Jesus. Okay, the trial of Jesus. And this is a trial before the religious establishment. And then verses 69 through 75, I'm going to call that the trial of Peter. There's actually two, two trials, two people, two people facing trial. Okay? So let's look at, first of all, the trial of Jesus. We'll look at verse 57. It says, And those who laid hold of Jesus, that would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, this posse, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, the first thing you need to do is know that who Caiaphas, the high priest, is. Uh, he is the number one ruler of the Jews in uh, Israel. He is located in the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, and he has been appointed by Caesar to be high priest. In other words, a pagan Roman emperor or king has appointed this guy to be the Jewish high priest. So he does Rome's bidding. He doesn't do God's bidding, which he's called to do. He does Caesar's bidding. And his main job is to keep the masses of Jewish people who are common people, uh, who are oppressed, from rebelling against Rome. That's his main job, as far as Rome is concerned. So, Caiaphas sees Jesus as a troublemaker. He thinks that Jesus is uh, going to lead a riot, a revolution. And Caiaphas can't afford an Arab Spring. Like they had in Egypt. Where a government is overthrown. So, he can't tolerate that rebellion, and if he can't stop it, if he can't stop Jesus in his tracks, then Rome will find somebody else to take his place who can. But he's not about to let that happen. So he needs to get rid of Jesus. Okay. Now, when you look at that verse, you'll notice several things there. First of all, just from last week, we know that this trial is uh, being held past midnight. It's an unusual time to hold a trial, isn't it? Yeah, that's against Jewish law, in fact. But they're going to hold this somewhere around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. 1 to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Notice that the scribes and the Pharisees are already assembled there. Now, that means this is a special called session of the Sanhedrin. It means it had to be arranged earlier in the day. said, so you need to be ready on a moment's notice to uh, assemble so we can try this guy. Uh, 
Notice also, we know that the, when the Lord's Supper was held, which would have been a Thursday evening, this is now, let's say, 1 or 2 o'clock Friday morning. Uh, this is, uh, you could not hold a trial on a day preceding a holiday, which was the Passover. So this is illegal as far as Jewish law is concerned. And the trial is held, it says, in uh, Caiaphas' home. It's actually his palace. And so this is a trial that's being held out of sight. And Caiaphas has to do it this way because he thinks that if people find out what's going on, they're going to rebel. So he wants to get all this thing over before daybreak. So what happens is verse 58 says, And Peter followed Jesus at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. Now we know from verse 56, at the end of verse 56, after Jesus is arrested, all the disciples forsook him. That would include Peter. But guess what Peter does? He circles around <laughs> and he starts following this posse clandestinely to see where they're going to take Jesus. And they take Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. It's sort of a brave move that he makes. He's like sort of spying to see what happens. And it says, and he went in, in verse 58, and he sat with the servants. These would be the people who served the high priest the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they had to be on hand. And they're usually in bed at this hour, but they says, look, you guys sit out in the courtyard because we may need you to run and do something. So Peter goes out in that courtyard and he's with those servants who are you know, doing the bidding of the Sanhedrin. And here's the reason he's there. Look at the end of verse 59. To see the end. He's there to see what the outcome of that trial is. What's the conclusion? What are they going to do with Jesus? And so, in a sense, Peter is trying to keep his promise. Jesus, though others forsake you, I will not. I'm willing to die with you. I think he's really trying to just be there, you know. And, of course, he's curious. So then in verse 59 it says, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish, let's say what we call the high court system, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him dead, to put him uh, to death. Now the key verb there is sought. Uh, and this speaks of an ongoing effort. The uh, particular tense in this verb is, means they continue to do it over and over. They try to find these witnesses. Now it says that the witnesses are false witnesses. They sought false testimony against Jesus. Now this can be interpreted one of two ways. It can mean this is a kangaroo court and it was fixed from the start. They're hunting for a bunch of false witnesses to a lie. But the other option, and it may be the stronger option, is that this is a legitimate trial in the sense that they are going to pass judgment on Jesus and they seek for witnesses, but the witnesses can't agree. Uh, it's not a true witness. You needed, according to Jewish law, two witnesses to agree, and they came up short in that sense. In that sense. So we don't know for sure which it is, but Matthew is the only one that says they're false witnesses. All the other Gospels say they sought witnesses, and their witnesses just weren't true to each other. So it could mean that. So we're just not certain. But anyway, they're certainly not... Uh, they don't jive. The witnesses, the testimonies don't jive. In verse 60, it says they didn't find anybody. See, it says they, they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. None that could agree with each other. 
Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. So what does it mean? Though many false witnesses came forward, they found none? Well, if they came forward, you found them, didn't you? So it can't mean that. So what it means is they came forward, they couldn't find any two that would jive. Their stories would jive. That's where the false comes in, I think. Okay? So you still with me on that? So, but, at the end of verse 50 says, at last, two false witnesses came forward, and guess what? They said the same thing. Here's what it says. And they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. So now they have two that are true to each other. And the charge is, this guy has intimated that he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, this is a serious charge. Uh, this would be likened to someone who would say, I'm going to blow up St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City. Or I'm going to set off a bomb in Times Square. Or I'm going to blow up the Twin Towers. This is a terrorist act. He's going to destroy the main structure in Jerusalem. This definitely is worthy of death. This guy is a terrorist. And just think about terrorism in America and you know what kind of charge this is. This is a serious charge. And Jesus is standing there and he's listening to his accusers. So look what happens in verse 62. The high priest rose and he said to him, Aren't you going to say anything? Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. What could he say? <laughs> Just a few days before... When the disciples asked him about what's going on, he said, you see those stones in that temple? <laughs> you know, not one of them is going to stand. What can he say? I never said anything like this. So he just doesn't say anything. And of course, that wrangles the chief priest. And so he starts another level of questioning in verse 63. Look what it says. So the high priest answered and said to him, I'm putting you under oath. One thing to be questioned by the cops or a judge informally. But when you're put under oath, now you better answer truthfully. You just can't keep your mouth shut. They didn't have a, you know, fifth <coughs> amendment. I plead the fifth. <laughs> he has to speak now. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. The title comes out of Psalm 2, which means God's king, God's representative on earth. And so now this question goes to a different level and he must answer under oath. He has to tell the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now you know back in chapter 16, Jesus took a survey and said, who do people say that I am? Ah, some say you're John the Baptist, Jeremiah, and other prophets. <laughs> but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are what? The Christ. Son of the living God. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, don't go out and tell anybody that yet. This is known as the messianic secret. Okay? Jesus is Messiah, but he doesn't want a whole bunch of people to know it because what's going to happen, they think the Messiah is going to overthrow the government, set up the kingdom of God, it's going to cause violence and you know, riots in the streets. So he is doing things differently, but now he's put under oath and the priest says, well, who are you? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you God's 
Messianic king? Now look at verse 64. Jesus answered and said to him, It is as you said. And some translations uh, interpret those words, wor these words, uh, these are your words. Or, uh, so you say. And it makes it look like Jesus is sort of non-committal. But we know in Mark's Gospel, when the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God, he simply says, I am. So that's how we're to interpret this. This means that Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Now, I don't think that the high priest clapped his hands and said, well, let me bow down to the Messiah. When are you going to deliver us? He thinks Jesus is a false Messiah. Right? He's not accepting this as meaning that Jesus is a legitimate Messiah. He thinks Jesus is an imposter. So, in verse 64, Jesus says, I am, or it is as you say, but then comes an addendum. He says, but, nevertheless, I want to say something else to you. Okay? So I'm going to say, yes, I am, but I want to say something else to you, Mr. High Priest. And here it is. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, meaning right hand of God, coming on the clouds of heaven. And uh, this is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Psalm 110, which speaks of the Son of Man, this being, coming and judging the world, and eventually setting up the kingdom on earth. And... Uh, the high priest takes it as a threat. Because what it sounds like is this. Jesus saying, you might be judging me now, but one day I'm going to come and judge you. You might be in charge now, but one day I'm going to be in charge. You might think you speak for God and be you're God's representative on earth. At least that's what you claim. I'm representative. I'm God's representative on earth. So the high priest says, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, basically, I'm the son of man. I'm not only the son of God. I'm not one who's just going to set up some kingdom. I am one who's going to come and judge people before I set up the kingdom. And when I do, basically, this is how the high priest would interpret it. You're going to be out of office. And uh, at this point, the high priest just explodes. I mean, you talked about going bonkers. Exit. Okay. He's had enough of this nonsense. And so in verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes. He went, ah! Shows how angry he is. You wouldn't want to tear your nice robes, would you? But he does. Tore his clothes. He said, he's spoken blasphemy. He claims to be God's representative. He claims to be the one who's going to bring about divine judgment. He claims to speak for God. He claims to be inspired in what he says. See, that's what he's saying. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look. Now you've heard his testimony, he says to the Sanhedrin. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's deserving of death. So they had their little jury trial. If you're all in favor of death, raise your left hand. <laughs> raise it. I wouldn't think they would raise the right hand. They'd raise their left hand. 
and they condemned Jesus to death. That was my attempt at humor, which wasn't too, too good. Okay. Now what happens in verse 7? So he's charged with blasphemy, which, by the way, would be considered uh, punishable by death, according to Jewish law. Then they spat on his face, and this is probably the soldiers who were holding him, and they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. These are insults. Like if you wanted to challenge somebody to a duel, and not too long ago, just a hundred years or so ago, you would go back and you would just slap them with the back of your hand. That's an insult. That's a challenge. So they just insulted him. They, they ridiculed him. They spat on his face. Nothing could be worse than that. Spitting on your face is the ultimate insult. Right? And they said in verse 68, prophesy to us. You seem to know the future, that you're going to be the judge, you know. Uh, prophesy to us, Christ. Who's the one who struck you? I mean, if you can predict that the temple's going to be destroyed in the future, if you can predict that the high priest is going to be judged in the future, hey, can you predict right now who's clapping in your face? And we know from other Gospels that they you know, had his eyes closed and all this kind of stuff. So they're saying, well, who's hitting you? Now, and of course, he doesn't say, and it looks like, well, he can't predict anything. He's a false prophet, which is the basis for the death penalty. So I want to show you, look over at Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you just go there for a moment. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy chapter 18. And when you get there... <coughs> Go down toward the end of the chapter and find verse 20. This will be Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 20. And then we see a real twist, I think, in our story. Okay, so here's what it says. Deuteronomy 18, 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, God said, which I cannot, not, not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And that's what they're saying. Jesus claims to be speaking for God. He claims to be speaking judgment for God. He claims to be God's representative. He claims to predict the future. He can't even predict who's slapping him in the face. He's a false prophet. He's worthy of death. And the way the Jews killed people, executed people, was through stoning. But uh, Jews weren't ruling their own lives. They were under Rome's authority. And Rome did not allow the Jewish high court to execute anybody. They could bring you to trial. They could find you guilty. They could pass a sentence, a death sentence, but they couldn't execute the death sentence. Once the death sentence had been passed, you had to take that prisoner and transfer them over into the Roman court system, where Jesus would go before Pontius Pilate. And it would be the Roman governor who would have to put that person to death. Okay? So, uh, Jesus is condemned for being a false, an imposter Christ, a false prophet, for committing blasphemy. And the irony is, is that they mock Jesus for being a false prophet. Now listen carefully, because this is, I think is significant to the passage. They mock Jesus for being a false prophet uh, just at the moment that is prophecy about Peter denying him three times is 
going to be fulfilled. So the next scene, which I call the trial of Peter, which begins in verse 69, is an affirmation that Jesus is a true prophet, not a false prophet, that he is the Messiah, not an imposter. Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's look at verse 69. We have Peter's trial. Okay? So verse 69 simply says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, all the servants, saying, I do not know what you're saying. Denial number one. Notice this response. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. He plays dumb. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay? Now look at verse 71. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. Denial number two. Notice the response. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. Okay? So that is the second thing. Now this time he goes a little stronger. He denies knowing Jesus under oath. Now both Jesus and Peter are under oath. The high priest imposes an oath on Jesus. And Jesus answers the question, honestly, I am the Christ. Peter imposes the oath upon himself and then lies. <laughs> he says, I don't know this guy. Denial number two. Okay. Now look at verse 73. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them because your speech betrays you. You have a northern accent. You're a Yankee. Look, you're not from Jerusalem down here. You're up north. Jesus from up north. Your, your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. There is denial number three. Now when it says he curses, it doesn't mean he started using profanity. That's how you think of it, because you're in America. But it's not that. It means... He calls a curse down upon himself. In other words, he's saying, May the Lord strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth. See? So he curses in that way. He calls a curse down and he swears. He says, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mama's grave. You know, I'm telling the truth. And here's the truth I do not know the man. <laughs> this is absolutely the strongest kind of denial you can have. Denial number three. And then the end of verse 74 says, and immediately the rooster crowed, proving that Jesus indeed is a prophet. He is God's spokesman. And by the way, this wasn't seen by the high priest of the Sanhedrin. This was taken, this was happening outside in the courtyard, and the only people that saw it were the nobodies. 
But God heard it. And Jesus knew it was going to happen. And then we end the chapter with this, these words. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he went out. And he wept bitterly. All Peter's boasting. The others may forsake you, I'll die with you. A bunch of hot air. Because when the rubber met the road, while his intentions were good and he thought he was willing to die for Jesus, when Jesus was condemned to the capital crime, he decided, well, maybe it's better off that I just step back and he's not prepared to die for his Messiah. His Messiah is willing to die for him. And Messiah is willing to die for you. Are you willing to die for Messiah? <coughs> Peter isn't willing. So I see this as having two trials. There are two trials. The first trial is the trial of Jesus. And he is found guilty before the Sanhedrin, but he's innocent in God's eyes. God vindicates him, and three days later, God's going to raise him from the dead, vindicating him. And Peter is also on trial, and he is found guilty, but he goes out, and it says he weeps bitterly. He confesses his sins. He's brokenhearted. He pleads for forgiveness. This is what we would say repentance is. And uh, obviously, the Lord restores Peter because when Jesus is resurrected, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you denied me three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Jesus doesn't take Peter at his word anymore. <laughs> he said, well, if you love me, what? Be my sheep. Let's see some action. So, we can all talk a good game, and I think every one of us have good intentions that we would be faithful to the Lord, but when the going gets tough, sometimes we don't come through, and what is the evidence that we indeed love Him is the way we live. And I think that's what Matthew's readers, which would include us, should take away from this, is that Jesus faces a trial. And he faces it knowing that this is God's will. And he, he faces his trial in the power of faith. And he succeeds. Peter faces his trial in the power of the flesh. <laughs> I will, I will. But guess what? It fails. Because when we face these trials, we can't face the trials and go through life picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps and depending on the flesh. And just our will, we too must trust God to get us through these troubles. And many times we're tempted to deny the Lord at work, at school, in our neighborhoods. We don't want people to think we're a little weird. We have all these temptations and we must learn the lesson of not trying to live our life by the flesh, but need trust the Lord. And uh, when we do, uh, we will succeed. But the good news is when we fail, God offers forgiveness and He lifts us up. He doesn't reject us. Even though we're not willing to die for Him, 
he was willing to die for us. Next week, we pick up with Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, and we discover that Judas goes out and hangs himself. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to realize that we are like Peter. Some of us are not as braggadocious. We don't come out verbally and proclaim that we would die for you. Others are more closed mouthed, but we still would intend to be faithful to the end. And yet, Lord, we're weak and we give in to temptations and we fail. Help us, Lord, to know what it means to walk by faith. Help us, Lord, to know what it means that when we do fail, that we can be brokenhearted before you and you'll forgive us. And you'll still use us to go out and tend to your flock. In Christ's name.